Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABS Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Today is Thursday the 16th of April. Uh, COVID-19 and its dramatic impact on the economy is affecting every person and markets, as we all know, have been responding pretty wildly. Today, I'm joined by Evan Lucas, the Chief Market Strategist at InvestSmart, who has the fascinating job of trying to understand the impact of a pandemic in the midst of record markets, followed by a bear market, followed by a bull market in a bear market. And what on earth investors are supposed to do with themselves in this situation? Evan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks as always for having me, Gemma. It's a it's a very interesting time, as you just said, and I, I use that word deliberately because I, you know it is horrible. But uh, from our world, from the economic world, from the market world, it's there's something like nobody living today has ever seen. It's, I think that point about having a bull market in a bear market is extraordinary, mm. right? Like you meet all the technical definitions of two things that are supposed to be diametrically opposed, but they're both happening at the same time. Yeah, but we have seen this before. Uh, have we? Uh, yeah. So if you look back in the GFC and have a look in October 2008, the US did this twice, uh, where it did actually technically rally near enough to 22% in October 2008, and it then did it again at the back end of October 2008 and into slightly into 2000. Uh, sorry, November 2008 as well. But if you remember, we didn't finish the bear market, the full long-term bear market, until what the US believes is the end date of the GFC, which is the 1st of March, 2009. So it tends to be stereotypical of a bear market that you see these rallies. Because the other thing that's happening at the moment, and before we get on to your, your better questions, I'm going to nerd out on my uh, market stats here for you. So at the moment, we've just broken the record for the most amount of volatility the US markets have actually ever seen. So what I mean by that is that we have now seen for 16 consecutive trading days, a movement of 1% up or down every trading day. It also, we only had that interrupted uh, around about, what would have been the March the 17th, top of my head, where we only moved 0.4 in the US. It would have meant that we would have had another additional 13 days on top of that. So the volatility in the equity markets and in markets in general is like something we've never seen. So in March, the average of the volatility index in the US was about triple that of the normal historical average. It was about 57. It hit 82, which is the highest it's ever been. And the other thing about volatility I need to point out before we go on, volatility isn't like some inverse gauge of going, right, market's going down, volatility goes up. It's not what volatility measures. It measures options, obviously. And it therefore also means it does it on the up days as well. And if you have a look at the absolute relativity of that, the movement in the volatility index is amplified by the fact that we're not only getting these big down days that we were getting in March, we're getting really big up days. And until that calms down, then I reckon you can actually go, right, the bull market that we've apparently just had would actually be confirmed, not just a normal trading condition of what is a fairly stereotypical bear market, volatility through the roof, moving over a percent per day until having very, very clouded outlooks. It's, it's just fascinating. I love that data. That's just <laughs> awesome. Like, you know it intuitively. I find it fascinating. Um, 
I only work part-time, although not really at the moment. It's very, very full-time. Um, <laughs> you have those days where you go, I'm just going to stop watching the market while I go and yeah. eat lunch. In my case, my kids are at home. So, you know, go and get them some lunch or whatever. You come back and you're like, it's moved like 600 oh. points. Like, what happened? Yeah, Where I was it? Like, it didn't go very far. I think the day I highlighted this, I think it was, it was actually, yes, I do remember. It was uh, March the 13th because it was a Friday and obviously everybody was making the spookiness. And the ASX did something that you just never see. We didn't even actually see it in the GFC where it was down 4.7% top of my head and mm-hmm. ended up finishing up 4.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of volatility you just don't expect. Or the fact that we broke our all-time record upside in one day, we moved 7%. Uh, and that would have been end of March. And, and that's... That's stereotypical of a bear market. What isn't stereotypical is the reasoning. Obviously, COVID-19 is, as I said, like nothing we've ever seen. And touch wood, we never see it again. uh, Because what this all shows to you, and I know that's what we're going to talk about for this podcast, is the level of uncertainty and just how opaque this is to markets, Mm -hmm. to economies, because we don't generally know and I'm going to be honest with all of the listeners out there, we don't know. I, I know there's a lot of modelling that suggests X, Y, Z, but there, we just don't know the outcomes. And that's why I think the IMF's you know, numbers that they came out with for their expectations around recovery and, and what we're going to have in 2020 had to have four scenarios. And even then, you could still find that they're wrong. Mm. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm rereading Black Swan for very obvious reasons. Uh, and yeah. it's a brilliant book, right? If you haven't read it, get on it. I don't mean it, Evan. I'm sure you've read it. But it's, um, you know, it's famous for a reason, right? And he points out we're all absolutely woeful at predicting the future because it's incredibly difficult to do. And in this scenario, so he did say a pandemic <laughs> was a realistic possibility quite some time ago. So that bit was accurate, but the timing is borderline impossible to predict. One thing we can talk about, though, so let's start at the beginning. Do you want to tell us how the economy was going before COVID-19 hit our radar? Because I think it's really critical for people to, you know, you only have to stretch your mind back three months, but it's very difficult after everything that's happened. Where were we? How were things going? Yeah, we could even probably stretch ourselves back to the 1st of March. I think that's probably, (laughs) you know, where where, where we were because that was... COVID-19 was around. China was going through the height of it for them. You know, we had here in Australia obviously put travel restrictions and travel bans on on China. Uh, We were were looking at like having a fairly soggy but an okay 2020. Um, Unemployment was expected to be a bit lower than it was. It was continuing to be stubbornly high at around about sort of 5%, 5.1%. Uh, and then if we have a look, it's it's still, according to mid-May with the data that we got for the March numbers, which everybody's sort of surprised about, sitting at 5.2%. You also saw net exports continuing to really boom. We actually saw for the first time since the 70s at the back end of 2019, a current account surplus that is just <laughs> um, which was amazing, um, off the back of the idea that what has been also quite, Again, we always talk about us being the lucky country, and maybe this is luck in some respects. The issues that have been going on in Brazil, as horrendous as they've been, has meant iron ore prices have actually remained quite elevated. We still have the best iron ore on the planet in terms of like various content quality. So it's why, if you look at our net exports, 
iron ore prices of various content of 62% or and higher, which is tends to be most of what Australia produces, was getting unbelievable pricing. The other thing that we forget about is that the US dollar was continuously going up against everything, continuously against the Australian dollar. We were sitting at an average price of 68 to 70 cents. So the better iron ore price coupled with the lower Aussie dollar was giving the government a boon. And it also meant the economy was sort of scraping through. So although growth wasn't fantastic, it was still likely to grow. I know people will argue per capita we may have been going backwards. But overall, 2019 is, you know, what even was that? Because it's actually technically on the market being wiped out. But we had the best year since the GFC. Growth-wise, we were there. We were starting to see signs that employment may have been getting better. It was it was okay. And then you also, you know, another thing everybody looks at in this country particularly is housing. We were going through a, another mini housing boom and the fact that you'd seen, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, have prices move to record all-time highs. And that was pre-corona. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, – there was so much to think about with back then. I mean, one thing that you didn't mention, though, was the RBA was still somewhat concerned about where the economy was at, right? They were still with an easing bias – even though they yep. keep telling us things were going to return to 3% growth, right? Yeah. So they really left them out because I think they need to be a topic in themselves. And yeah, sure. why I say that is that at the back end of last year, what was starting to become apparent, and we spoke about the employment numbers, is that the more and more we went along, the one thing that I think will probably be starting to be reported on more and more and more and more, particularly through this coronavirus scenario, is the fact that wages weren't growing. Now, mm-hmm. unemployment was okay, but they were talking about their terminal rate, which is basically where they actually start to see the balancing between where unemployment falls to a certain level where inflation starts to move. So that, on their view, had actually changed from being around about sort of 5% to 4.5%, and it wasn't really getting there. The other thing about that is what they refer to constantly is the slack in the market. And this is, I, as I said, getting back to my point around what we're going to start reporting on more and more, underemployment and underutilization. For those of you out there asking what that is, underemployment are those of you that are working but want to work more to make more money. So those of you on part-time, casual work, blah, 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 they are a big percentage. They're about 8% or thereabouts. In fact, as of today, I think it's 8.6% in terms of where it sits. So underutilization is the unemployment rate plus underemployment. Before COVID, it was sitting at about 13.1%. It's now at 13.9. The reason I highlight that is because the underemployment is likely to start picking up all those people that have been put on standout. Technically, standout, you are not unemployed because obviously you're still on the books. You're just frozen in time. You are allowed to get welfare benefits from the government. But technically, technically, under the way it works, you're not unemployed, but you are underemployed. And that is what I think is going to be a very, very good gauge of where this scenario sits. So getting back to the RBA question, they were starting to get really worried that that slack just wasn't being absorbed because companies just weren't expanding, weren't investing and weren't therefore growing their workforce. So they were cutting rates because housing was already booming. We knew that. And their concern was cutting rates from where it was, which was 0.75 of 1% down to 0.5. And then we're now down at obviously 0.25 of 1%. Um, Sorry, the 1% and all the way down to where we are now was that you were going to hyperinflate the market, the housing market already. But the RBA has a mandate for a whole range of things. Big two, inflation between 2 and 3%. 
and employment being what they call full employment. And neither of those two mandates have been met since the third quarter of 2015. We haven't had core inflation between 2 and 3% since then. It's been basically hovering around between sort of 1.5 and as high as 1.9, now currently sitting at 1.8. And as I said, unemployment, although it's not at the level they want to, it's okay, but underemployment and therefore wage growth just has not moved and that is an RBA headache. Yeah, well, they've got plenty of other headaches now, but one feels like they haven't got a lot of options available to them. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the virus and and the response that's been extraordinary. So virus was a very small concern back in January, plenty of people saying, look, it's not something we need to worry about too much. Uh, it's become a much bigger concern and there's been a dramatic response in terms of uh social restrictions placed on people, but the economic response has also been fascinating. So can you tell me about what the economic response has been, fiscal and monetary, and how you think that's going to play out? Yeah. So monetary sort of started talking on it. So the RBA on a monetary basis, this is the RBA side, has obviously done what they have, were probably talking about even before Corona, which was if they were going to cut rates one more time, it would be to what they refer to as their terminal rates. They do not believe in negative rates like what we've seen over in Europe with the European Central Bank or in Japan with the Bank of Japan. They basically said that once interest rates in Australia got to 025 of 1%, that was it. So we've got there. That's happened. They cut rates at their emergency meeting on the 19th of March. But what's been also quite astounding, we didn't even do this in the GFC. That's how you know, scenario, like serious this whole scenario is, is that the RBA has gone through a group of monetary policy levers that most people didn't think would ever happen in Australia. So I'm just going to talk through, through my view anyway, the two that are outside of the rate cut that actually matter. There's four of them, but the fourth one's around basically exchange rate sort of costing is and it's just making it as cheap as possible. We'll put that to one side. It's the $90 billion of additional liquidity going through the banks. It's about trying to support small and medium enterprise with very, very, very cheap liquidity loans, which is great. The catch that I have with that is that it does therefore have the mechanism of going through credit teams inside banks and credit teams at the moment obviously have a huge issue of trying to actually gauge and price and work out risk. Uh, so therefore, although that liquidity is there, they are getting, you know, loan applications from businesses that technically could be about, a, you know, a, a hair's breadth away from being insolvent. So there's Just a risk. On that, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, go for it. But at the same time, the government has allowed directors yes. to be absolved of responsibility for trading while insolvent for an extraordinary period of time. So yep. you can imagine the credit teams are going to become more. Sorry. I believe that's a mistake. I believe that is a policy mistake. I understand why they're doing it, but it is a mistake. And why I say that is how do you unwind that legislation? Second and of all is that once this goes away, if they're insolvent, trading through insolvency during this period, the insolvency continues They've therefore, the, the crash that it's creating inside their supply chains and inside their, their in overall economic network could be really quite catastrophic in my view. I think that was a mistake. I understand why they're trying to do it. They're trying to keep these businesses flowing, blah, blah, blah. But 
you are having a scenario where anecdotally, let's take something like a hairdresser. I think it's a really interesting example. They are trading insolvent because they don't have anybody coming in. They've got the odd customer X, Y, and Z, but they are still trying to keep their bricks and mortar premises open, staff on hand, blah, blah, blah. They're also ordering product, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't paid their bills because they're allowed to with regards to this legislation, but they keep trading, they keep trading, they keep trading, trying to get sort of some form of flow. We come out of COVID-19, you know, things go back to normal, cash flow starts to come flowing in to some extent, but they still have a whole heap of debtors outstanding, plus now going back to normal daily operations. They will still be so far underwater, it's not funny, and therefore they're still technically insolvent. The difference is that the insolvency of them just got bigger, and that I think is a risk. My, my concern with it is exactly what you're saying. There'll be quite a multiplier effect that the original business that has become insolvent through horrific circumstances outside their yes. control uh, then results in all of their suppliers becoming insolvent, right? Having yep, exactly. Uh, supplied goods and services in good faith expecting to get paid and uh, and the original business yep. is gone, yeah, well, sorry, I'm not, yep. not on the I'm hook not for that for now. Correct. So that's 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 the ninety billion dollars. The other one I think is also is in my world even more interesting is the the that what they are technically doing is targeting price. So it's not QE like we saw during the GFC. I I would argue it is a form of quantitative easing. Some people don't, but the RBA because they're not technically printing money from us. But what they are doing they're going into the secondary market. So they're going into the Australian sovereign debt market, and they are targeting the three year bond to have a yield of 0.25 of 1%. So unlike the US Federal Reserve we saw in the GFC where they were basically almost indiscriminately putting 80 billion US dollars into the market every month, buying up mortgage-backed securities and US treasuries, our RBA is, is actually trying to effectively reduce the, the cost that the government and that also borrowers have from our bond market. So the reason it's very, very targeted, again, it gets back down to making sure that our banks are not only full on liquid, but also have the ability that their capital repayments are quite incredibly low. Uh, it's a good stimulus measure. I do not deny that at all. But um, I think the, the monetary policy side is is not necessarily going to get to the people it needs to as easily as what the fiscal side is, and let's sort of come to that other part of your question, Gemma. The fiscal side is always what has been argued by the RBA for probably the last two years, which is that without fiscal reform, we weren't going to move. Fiscal reform's been forced, and the fiscal reform has not only changed, it is it's amazing in terms of, as you said, it's incredible <laughs> the response that they've done to it. Um, We've got I'm this government that was very wedded to its uh, to its surplus. surplus and to being fiscally conservative, as they call it, and all of these things. And now we've got the most Keynesian government I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like yeah. one extreme to the other. Correct, and you know, ten point eight percent of GDP in stimulus measures. Mm. That's that's what it equates to. Now, some people will mm. point out that it's not all of that because obviously there's debts involved and there's and all this stuff. But in the main, let's just keep it as simplistic as we can. The hundred and thirty billion. JobKeeper program is clearly very, very solid policy. It's clearly going to be very, very good at making sure that those that are on standby that we talked about at the start of this podcast will get roughly 1500 bucks a fortnight. Mm -hmm. And those that unfortunately have lost out who are on the 
uh, are unemployed can apply for the job seeker, which is effectively the unemployment um, uh, benefit that was there. And on top of that, there are other things you've got to remember. It's actually more than 1100 bucks per fortnight. If you get the rent allowance, there's two others off the top of my head that I've forgotten. I shouldn't have. That's terrible of me. Um, <laughs> but once you add those two in there, it probably ends up being near enough to two grand a fortnight. It's a huge amount of money. It's a huge stimulus package. It certainly has reduced the real massive fallout that coronavirus could have been. Yeah. Uh, will it work? Great question. <laughs> what happens after the six months? Because obviously that's the time frame that the government's given. Great question. Um, but the fiscal side is certainly a big white night. Whether it's the biggest yeah. white night to rescue is a different story, It is, but it is there. Um, and it certainly will take a level of pressure off that was a big concern to all markets, not just the equity market, but you look at the property market, it all feeds in, it all economically touches. I mean, if you lose your job, have no income and you're renting, how the hell do you pay your rent? Um, mm. How do you then go out and buy your groceries? All that kind of stuff. So it is, you know, you can boil it down to that granular level going, this is the desired effect of the fiscal policy is to basically take pressure off the community now, what I'm going to say, and I'm not even going to answer this question, I'm going to actually just deliberately put this at you, Gemma, and to, for your listeners <laughs> to have a go out. What is, because you said this perfectly, the government has gone from being a fairly traditional, in fact, probably quite strongly conservative government around their fiscal policy to being quite Kensington. I would even go further than that. I would argue that what we are possibly seeing, not just here in Australia, but globally, is monetary, modern monetary theory by stealth. If you think about what monetary monetary is, it is basically the government consistently, constantly printing money to backstop the community. That's what they're doing. The caveat with all this, that modern monetary theory, some would say they do explain, I would argue maybe not so much, is who ends up holding the debt and who has to pay it. The interesting thing around that and why I'll say straight out, I don't know the answer, is that at the moment, the biggest owner of Australian debt and will continue to be so in the future is the Reserve Bank of Australia. They're the ones buying it. So they're going to hold it on their balance sheet until expiry and then what? And that's the big question. And as I said, don't know the answer because no one does at the moment. Mm. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, what is most interesting about this, and as I said, it's particularly fascinating, it's come from a government that, as we said, was quite obsessed with being conservative and, and took being conservative to sort of new levels with some some of its policies. And then some of them didn't get through. I mean, I remember Joe Hockey's first budget when it was sort of the lifters versus the leaners and all of this stuff. And they were very clearly uh, trying to strip away uh, safety nets and benefits for people that they didn't feel were necessarily contributing, let's call it that, mm. leaners. Um, and that would go completely and, the other way, right? Anyone yeah, who is at risk of losing employment is getting double what a person on New Start six months ago would have been. It, it, it is the most extraordinary safety net you've ever seen, right? And it, I'm not making any comment about either of them, simply that it's such a dramatic it's, shift. It's such a change. And the, the, the follow-up to that, and again, this is more of a, a thought bubble rather than a, than a fact, is how much of this policy will get rolled back? And what I mean by that, mm. clearly job seeker and job keeper will get rolled back. That's clear. But the changes to the childcare scenario, mm -hmm. 
that I think will become more of a permanent policy. Uh, changes to how they are going around employment benefits. That, I believe, is going to become a permanent change. There are other things built inside these policies that will probably end up becoming stronger. And this is, or, you know, the overall discussion we're having right now is that, you know, what was Australia looking like pre-COVID? What does it look post? And again, getting back to a, my slightly, you know, cynical view of, of things with regards to sort of monetary, monetary policy and all that kind of stuff is that we will go back to something similar to what pre-COVID was to my point to some extent, but the difference is, and this is the big question, the difference is, is that we will have a much, much larger state hand inside things than we've ever had before uh, and whether or not we're okay with that because the level of debt that we're talking about is like something we've never seen before. Questions I've been getting, you know, are we going to have intergenerational debt payoffs for for God knows how long? Probably, but at the same time, it's who's holding the debt that's different. The rates are at levels we've never seen before and are likely to stay there for the foreseeable future. But as I said, the other thing about this, this very conservative government has brought in very, very progressive policies that are likely to actually remain policy for whoever ends up in government. It is extraordinary and so fascinating. And so the question you're asking, I absolutely love, and I want to think about this a bit more, yeah. which is all of this stuff has been brought in to get us, in inverted commas, the, the, the economy, the Australian public, workers, everybody, through a period, and I don't mention retirees for the simple reason that the aged care is a fairly... Uh, robust safety net for retirees. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the rest of the population, there's not a terribly robust safety net there. Job seeker is much more generous than New Start ever was, that kind of stuff. So it was brought in a much more robust safety net for the rest of the population. In a scenario which is wasn't uh, wasn't beyond the realms of possibility, but it wasn't one that we were all planning on quite at the beginning of this year. So, so this extraordinary thing has happened. It's been a great threat to the economy. We've done quite well in terms of managing the mm -hmm. actual health risk within the Australian population. I mean, I think everyone is with the, and I have to be careful about how I say this, you know, with the exception of those people who've been directly affected, and it's a tragedy in that scenario, but far fewer people have been directly affected than we were originally anticipating. When you look at Italy and New York and some of these places, the alternative is so horrific. So we've sort of done quite well so far, and whether that continues is a different question. So all of these very strong measures have been brought in socially, very strong measures economically, what are your thoughts on how we come out the other side? Yeah. So as I said, I still think if you look at what and how the general population, even in their stage three lockdowns here in Australia or complete utter lockdowns in other parts of the world, they're still trying to live like they were pre COVID-19 and that's a human instinct that's a behavioral thing and you know that's something I know that you Gemma particularly talk about a lot with with what you do behavior will change slightly but we still are very social beings we are still very much around particularly in the western world the idea of consumption we're still around the idea of of work and that kind of lifestyle that comes with it it's just going to be slightly different I mean the the again anecdotally have a look at the take-up of, of virtual products you know everybody knows what's happened with zoom and if you ever want to have a look at a share that's just absolutely 
could not have had a better time for COVID-19 to come along. It's Zoom. Um, it's up over 280%, if I remember off the top of my head, with regards to what... Just, just get the right Zoom, right? Correct. <laughs> yes. So by just Zoom right. technologies. Yeah, that's right. Um, and those those kind of, you know, adaptions are a part of, of what's going to happen. Like I said, though, I, the difference will be the impact and the the closeness of the state, uh, particularly around the level of impact on the economy, the fact that we've now got a huge amount of public spending and public funding sitting in, in markets, sitting in the economy, and whether or not we're okay with that. I think we will be. Um, I think what we've shown, again, this is looks straight at Australia, we're a pretty compliant lot, which is something that we don't normally get to sort of say about Australia. But we, you know, if we get told and, and what have you to do something, we tend to do it. And we're also, you know, a, a nation that tends to sort of go, okay, we'll just get on and do it. So that also, from my perspective, again, looking at the economics of it, is that actually bodes well, in my view. And the reason I say that is that when the restrictions start to loosen and they won't go from, you know, stage three back to zero, they'll, they'll loosen. And in that view, you know, people will go out a little bit more, they'll consume a bit more, but it won't be an explosion um, and so on and so forth. But what I, what I would say, though, out of all this, and my conclusion from it is that we will still want to have a pre-COVID lifestyle post-COVID um, and we will still want to act and behave and, and live a lifestyle that we had beforehand just with the knowledge that we may have to be just a little bit more vigilant on our health side rather than anything else. That's really interesting. So one of the, and it just, you haven't mentioned the possibility that things may become irretrievably broken during this period. Um, and I think that's quite interesting because there are some, some sectors where clearly the downturn has been so sharp and so severe. Yep. That so aviation is obviously one. Aviation was the example I was going to give you where you go, yeah. How do you come out the other side of this, right? When you are a debt-laden business anyway, you have to lay off tens of thousands of staff. You literally cannot function for yep. health and legislative reasons. The so this time goes back to my point around the state, viability is quite long. Yeah, so this gets back to my point around the state. Make I know the government currently is saying they have absolutely no desire to support Virgin and, and get them back up. That's fine, but they do have a need to have a duopoly in this country providing what is an essential service. You know, aviation is. Now, I get in a lot of trouble when I say this, and that's fine. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> from a business <laughs> point of perspective, for a business point of perspective, aviation is terrible. Um, aviation has become over the last 20 years glorified bus services, and when people hear that word, that that statement, they get very angry. But well, <laughs> essentially, that's what it is. It is trying to be as efficient and as low cost as it can get, but with a level of service that people still expect from the you know late 80s, early 90s. And that necessarily doesn't work. And that's why, you know, the likes of a Tiger and a Jetstar and, you know, over in the, in Europe, things like Ryanair, Air Berlin, blah, 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 have eventuated because they have embraced that idea that they are a glorified bus service, getting people from A to B as efficiently and as cheaply as they possibly can. And that's been great. However, as you said, when you have a government-mandated lockdown of your business where it cannot work at all, one with a bus in an Airbus, which is an incredibly expensive piece of uh, of operations, let alone you know the actual holding of it, it, 
it does ruin you. Now, getting back to the Virgin scenario specifically, that business has been a hard business to get excited about for seven or eight years. Let's you know, not skirt around the fact that their five biggest shareholders um, are from overseas. Three of them are airlines in themselves, um, supported by their own state, being people like Etihad, being people like um, Singapore Airlines and being um, HNA. These, these guys have their own problems, but at the same time, probably use Virgin as a vehicle to try and stifle its competitor in Qantas. Now, where I come to this point with the government, the government will want Virgin to, to survive. They particularly don't want to have debt to equity, but I think they're going to be forced to. But I suspect very clearly they're going to put a massive haircut into these major 90% shareholders. They're going to absolutely kick them to the curb and probably should. Um, and Virgin will be a much smaller, more slimlined carrier probably focusing very heavily on the domestic market rather than worrying about the international market um, and offering a, a service that is probably back to more their you know Virgin Blue days rather than what they tried to do under John Borghetti and their Virgin Australia days of trying to actually have a capacity war on a premium level with Qantas. And that may actually be what the government wants because, again, if you can have the ability to actually service your people with a low-cost airline, it's going to be much more efficient uh, because – as we saw, that the model just doesn't work. I mean, Richard Branson, the guy who started Virgin, is the best example of what I'm about to say, which, and this is his words, how do you become a millionaire from being a billionaire? By an airline. And that is why <laughs> um, it's it's a terrible business. And, and and what I mean by that is it's not just – I'm not just singling out Virgin here. If you look over history, airlines are a loss-making business, period. Look across the States, look across Europe. They are – Horrible businesses for so many reasons because they have such high costs. They have inputs to them that they just can't control. Jet fuel is one of those cases and points. Airline, what we also forget is that as soon as you put your wheels onto an airport, you pay an extortionate amount of money just for landing. Um, that's why something like Sydney airports, when things are working well, has been you know a utility of a cash cow um, because it's just such a busy airport. Um, it's a monopoly, and they get to take a clip of every every airplane that, that hits their tarmac. And all of those costs feed into why an airline is a terrible, hard business to run. So my husband did uh, work experience with a stockbroker in a regional area as a mm. teenager, and uh, and he learned a couple of really useful things, and one of them I loved, which he likes to remind me of occasionally, is never buy anything that eats, floats, or flies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect and, way of uh, it. That was that was several decades ago, but uh, yeah. I, uh, I, it was useful advice, I think. The flight so is one because you just don't want to be anywhere near yeah. Queensland, I think. Now would be the time to think about all of those, I think. Um, yeah. One thing that is quite interesting, so we talked about how we came into this crisis, and the crisis itself is not, broadly, not of our making, right? And we're trying to trying to control something outside of outside of our experience, actually, more than anything else. However, how you come into these scenarios is material. You know, Australia did very well through the GFC for a number of reasons. One of which was we had uh, pretty reasonable interest rates that could be cut pretty aggressively, and we also had a relationship with China, which was largely unaffected. One of the things that is on my mind as we go through this is the, the Australian consumer is the second most indebted individual in the world. Mm -hmm. Does that worry you? Uh, it does, but at the same time, this is where 
the more and more and more I look at this and the more and more you look at previous countries that have gone through similar scenarios. So Japan, it's not the greatest example, but it's an example of where indebtedness in the traditional sense has actually not played out the way that you would expect it to play out. So as you've already talked about, we've have had an, uh, a central bank that had the ability to, to buffer the economy by cutting rates during the GFC. Thing is, that's never recovered. We're now at terminal rates and unlikely to see that change. So in terms of the indebted consumer, they have the ability to probably cover repayments for a while because rates are going to remain at very, very, very low levels. But as we always talk about in all sorts of things, that will change. It will soon time in the future. They will go up. But the argument of them going back to even 2% in the foreseeable decade, and I do deliberately use that term, is is very, very hard to see uh, because that would mean inflation would have to be pretty high. Inflation needs to realistically be above 2.5% on a consistent six-month rolling basis for them to be sort of ramping up rates that fast. And what COVID-19 has caused is large levels of unemployment and it does take a long time for employment to be mopped up. So that, look, it's all into, you know, there's also, you know, an oxymoron and what I've just said there is that obviously the indebted consumer is unemployed um, mm-hmm. and that's the other catch around this. So it does worry me for that reason. It also worries me that the Australian economy probably wasn't modernising fast enough because we were lucky. We did, as you alluded to, Gemma, have China and our net exports still are keeping us quite lucky uh, in terms of where we sit. You know, even with the level of, of output of fiscal stimulus that the government's just put, we were sitting in a better fiscal position than, than a lot of other governments. And I agree with what the, the government was saying pre-COVID around that idea. Not that I was agreeing with how they were doing it, but I agree that they obviously were probably in a slightly better position than some of the nations that we're seeing in Europe um, at the moment with regards to where and what they can afford to put into their economies. But, and again, I say this very cautiously, the the difference is, is that there are certainly economic theories that have been broken by COVID and probably by the GFC, but they, they are breaking down and, and therefore, as I said to you, if a government could continue to just basically print money and control its currency and control inflation, then there there isn't maybe so much of a concern around the debt. Because again, I'd also probably point out debt's a tool um, and the way you use it is is, you know, obviously a question. There, you know, there would be an argument that your home loan has got a little bit too high, home loan housing prices got too high, yes. But at the same time, it's also, again, a relative value and a home loan is a leveraged product and, and people believe that they could continue to meet their repayments of that. And, and there's been lots of work that showed even before all this took off um, that the average mortgage repayment per month was about a, a quarter of your take-home pay, which was pretty much exactly the same as what it was in the 80s because interest mm. rates back there were you know, double digits and really ridiculously double digits. So... It depends on your angle, and, and that's that's why it's so hard to answer that question in, in in the space of you know five to ten minutes. It's it's a it's an economic debate that will go on for a long long time. Because the other thing that also, as you pointed out, is that we don't know the answer. We don't know what this will do economically to the Australian slash global economy longer term. Because this is such a, a an unforeseen event, such a horrific event. Um, 
a health crisis like we've never seen before and one that you know is, it could possibly linger around for several years in terms of going back to pre-covid days and what i mean by that is international travel or international movement is is certainly not looking like ever happening until the vaccine happens and and that who knows when that could happen and that's why again there's still a lot to play out here in terms of answering that question yeah, your point about um, about international travel is very interesting. I mentioned before that my father's a virologist and he plants, not people, uh, which don't move quite so much, but uh, but they don't move <laughs> around a bit. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, and it's the movement that is the issue, right, um, yes. with viruses in humans. And his view is that there will be no international travel until you have vaccine. Um, yeah, and that's what most people suggest. And that's, yeah, and that makes complete sense. Um Again, the, the, this issue of being asymptomatic for quite a while, right? Two weeks yeah. without symptoms is really dangerous. So, yeah, exactly right. I think the way to answer the also the next part of it is that what, because, you know, the other part you've asked me a couple of times is, you know, what does post-COVID look like? I, I think the probably the question is, what is what does the next 12 to 18 months look like for Australia in the mm -hmm. COVID world? Um, and I think you're already starting to hear what they're trying to do, which is that returning Australia to itself. Um, Western Australia, Queensland, Tasmania reopening their borders, uh, South Australia as well. Um, the freer movement of people that allows an aviation industry, for example, to, to actually start operating and actually having the economy look into itself to try and start to semi-recover. Um, I think that is that is the goal, the short-term goal of the federal and state governments and what the we're currently seeing out of out of um, the national cabinet. I think that is what they're trying to achieve, and that makes complete sense. Once you actually start to sort of have that, you will start to get a little bit more of a chugging along in the economy. Employment can start to move slightly again, and there can be, you know, some level of normality coming back. And I, I think that's as far as we can go at the moment, because I agree with what your father was talking about, which is that, as I said before, the international side of it is is going to take a long time of human movement. But what needs to be made sure of from, again, an Australian century point of view is that international trade can continue. And that will be a big, big part of how we get through this. If we can keep trading internationally, keep exporting what we've always done, we will probably get through COVID probably better, in my view, than, than some other countries that are significantly affected by being a service economy. Check out the UK, for example, or an economy purely based on manufacturing. Now, China is an example there, but also somewhere like Germany and France, which are which are you know going to see the ability to actually manufacture and export things like cars in a much much harder light. Because who needs a car at this point in the cycle? <laughs> you can't drive anywhere. Um, yeah. Go to the other side of town, and someone's checking your number plate. So, yeah. you're a market strategist. Yes. We started at the beginning of this talking about how markets are responding. It's obviously unbelievably complex. And the volatility and numbers you mentioned are really powerful to contemplate. I mean, they illustrate just how clearly people's views differ, if nothing else, um, and, and how they're Perfect trying to points. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and how they're throwing money at their opinions, their price and centre. Yep. What are your thoughts on how markets are responding? Uh, as I said, at the moment, in the intraday, intraweek, intramonth theory, they are responding very typically bear market-wise. My role in strategy is, again, the clients that, that we service at InvestSmart and what we look at InvestSmart is a longer-term view. Um, and history 
shows me, even with a scenario like COVID, which is, as I said, no one alive today has experienced anything like this. The Spanish flu is probably the closest to some extent in terms of similar scenarios happened during the Spanish flu, similar lockdowns, you know, global transfer reached pretty much every country in the world. Um, we've had other pandemics. I mean, you'd probably argue that AIDS is one of them. Um, you've had things like SARS, MERS, Ebola several times, et cetera. Polio is another one. Um, but the Spanish flu is the closest. And, and the reason I highlight that from a market's perspective is once we got through the Spanish flu, we had the roaring 20s um, in terms of the growth in markets and the growth of, of, of that scenario. We then had the Great Depression and some people are comparing what we're about to go through or are in the middle of as the same as the Great Depression. Now, before I go any further, just economically remember a, a depression de on definition is two consecutive years of recession. Now, I don't believe the world's going to have that. So we're going to have a very, very hard recession. Um, but again, and some would argue, again, the Second World War was part of this. But once we got through the Great Depression, you know, if you look at 1933, 1935, government stimulus came in, confidence started returning, government growth happened, state influence happened. Now, some people would say it's a bad thing because you did get the rise of somebody like Hitler and Mussolini, but you can show that the return happened. Then let's just have a look post-Second World War. If you have a look at that period, and let's look at the US, there has been 14 times where we've seen bear markets since the post-Second uh, World War era. And the average time of them is a year. So the average bear market goes for a year. The average loss on the S&P, for example, is around about 29%. Within the 12 months preceding a bear market, 12 times you've seen a bull market with an average gain of over 45%. Um, and then if you shorten this down and start looking at it from an Australian-centric point of view and also a US, we look back just to 1980. Um, we look for the ASX itself and the ASX accumulation index, which I think is a much better gauge than just looking at the capital because dividends are what Australians love. It's we are the highest yielding developed market in the world for a reason. We love our dividends. Um, and that's all part of your return. If you look at it from that perspective, or of, for instance, 1980 till not including the, the COVID-19 bear market yet, because uh, it hasn't fully been factored in yet, but we've had 37.1 years of since 1980 of bull market years, which means we've had 3.1 years of bear markets. The average- That's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing exactly. when you put it like that. It's an amazing statistic when you think about it. And therefore, if you also look again at the decline in the bear markets, so those 3.1 years, the decline has averaged around about 29%, same as the States. Uh, the upside has been astonishingly larger. It's about 57. Now, admittedly, we had an unbelievable run between basically 1996 to 2007, where there was mm. on the accumulation index, it was almost a thousand percent. But if you look at it from the GSC to where we got it on December 20th, it was 380% from the bottom yeah. of, the, of the GSC. And so getting back to your question, <laughs> Do I think we'll get through this? Yes, I do. Will it happen by Christmas? No. Next Christmas? Probable. The Christmas after? Yes, I do. And why I say it that way is that the longer-term outlook and the longer-term return 
history has shown through all different types of events, horrendous, horrendous events like we're going through right now, the economics will return, markets will return. So my argument at the moment is that let's get through the health issue. Let's let's get through this as a nation, as a as a globe, because I know the economies will return and I know that the markets will give the kinds of returns that I need. Because for me as a strategist, my time frame is the absolute core answer to all of this. And my time frame at the moment is is over seven and a half years. In fact, for what I'm currently doing personally, my, my investment time frame is 12. So I've got all the time in the world in my view. That's a very powerful way of putting it because my next question was how do you suggest investors play this? Uh, one of the most interesting things to me, if I look at what now trade, uh, traders and investors, because you know, we've seen a bit of both, right, in this market, yep. we have seen enormous volumes, right? Everybody's seen enormous volumes. So volumes have more than doubled, tripled in a lot of cases. Certainly plenty of days we've seen more than a tripling of volumes We've seen a five-fold increase of new participants coming to markets and new account openings, that kind of stuff. What's most fascinating to me is it's been a big swing to the buyers. So we saw a huge swing to the buyers when the market came off mm -hmm. and people buying up like crazy stuff they'd obviously wanted to buy for a while and felt was a bit expensive. But even with all that buying, so you would anticipate then that that cash volumes would fall, but money's in the market, it's out of cash. Our cash volumes have actually been increasing over time. So we've seen all this buying, a bit of profit taking the last couple of weeks for obvious reasons, market running back hard again, and yet all of this cash still coming in. So what it's telling me is in aggregate, investors are happy to buy when prices come off, but they think there's plenty further for it to fall. That seems to be what you're telling me about where we are in a bear market. Yep, and I'd agree with that. And that, yeah, look, Again, an anecdotal thing. One of my colleagues is, is Alan Cole. Um, he runs mm. our. Um, he's our editor in chief for Eureka, and he actually did an interesting Google search for. Basically, the Google search was "How do I buy shares?" and it mm -hmm. is at a record record high for Google searches. So that also anecdotally feeds into what you're talking about. There are clearly people that are seeing this scenario as a longer term opportunity. Now I don't trade, so I'll let your traders mm -hmm. do what they do, but the investors, I do invest and you're getting markets that people have wanted to be in for a long, long time from, you know, the GFC at a 25% discount um, from the February 20 high. Um, again, with my view of, of where things will be in the future, I, I, I suspect they'll recuperate that 25% sometime in the next five years quite easily um if not more and the compounding of of total returns i know will eat that for breakfast um and and that's why i'm not surprised people are getting set um in terms of where they see this uh because whether or not i mean again the other reason for it is that the, all this tragic information on the health side you are even still getting something like the imf saying we expect a contraction of six and a half percent in australia now i think that's overly pessimistic but that's not the point they expect a V-shaped recovery in 2021. I'm not as optimistic on that idea. I'm more of a U-shape idea. I think this will take a little bit longer to do because I think they'll roll back the current sort of social distancing rules slower than I think people expect. Um, but it's going to recover. And I'm, people are clearly off the idea. Of, as that starts to happen, they know markets still are trying to price 12 months ahead of time. And where are we going to be in 12 months ahead? We'd probably be better than we currently are, considering that you know right now is probably the worst scenario we could probably be in. 
And that's what people know and have learnt of, through the GFC post years, because that's what's happened for the last 11 years, basically, that we've had is it was almost, you know, almost to the day that the end of the US bull market was, it was 11, 11 years and not, and three days top of my head. So mm. that's, that's when it finished. So it was almost 11 years to the day that the US bull market finished. They have learned through that period that, you know, there will be a return. It will be strong. It will be solid. And, you know, there is more upsides in markets and there is downsides. But the old adage of, you know, up the stairs, down the elevator is what we are seeing right now. And we've seen it many, 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 many times in, in previous years. Well, it's been running up the stairs the last couple of weeks, but um, <laughs> the analogy I always heard was up the stairs, out the out the window. Or off the cliff. Yeah, well, it's hard <laughs> to come back up a cliff, right? That's tough. But um, Evan, Navtrade investors are fortunate enough to have regular access to some of the insights from InvestSmart. You guys have an exceptional range of contributors, investment insights and ideas. You write some brilliant stuff. How do people keep up to date with what you do? Yeah, so that's, you know, we are very lucky to have some incredible people. As I said, Alan Kohler is our, our editor-in-chief. Uh, we also have Paul Clitheroe, who's our chairman, but also writes for us. I do as well. But we also have a, a huge range of people in all ranges of, of scenarios. So we have a bond market expert, um, and Liz Moran is, is quite a, a forethought in there. We then also offer uh, the Intelligent Investor, which we have 12 dedicated research analysts to, to not just markets, but to individual stocks. Um, you can go to our website, investmart.com.au, to check that all out. We do have a 15-day free trial for anybody signing up. Right now, Alan's biggest thing is that he is interviewing as many people as he can on the medical side, but also on the investment side. And, and he's got a lot of hedge fund interviews, a lot of CEO interviews, and their takes at the moment are quite fascinating indeed. And I certainly recommend you guys get on there and have a really good listen. Evan, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting and valuable conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, as always, Gemma. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for listening. I should note to anyone tuning in, neither Evan nor I can guarantee you how this is going to play out, right? But do think about the risks to both the upside and the downside. It's uh, it's most definitely interesting times. We've been saying that for ages, but it's absolutely legit at the moment. As always, we love hearing from you. We have received some fantastic feedback, and we always love to get your questions and thoughts about what you'd also like to hear about. So please just email us at yourwealth@nav.com.au and look forward to speaking to you soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.